Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Back UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Back UK family and stay tuned. Hi and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show. The first topic this week is looking at differences in times it might take to get a diagnosis for a man and a woman and for the many reasons this might happen. Um, the male is constantly treated as the kind of prototype patient um, and a lot of the knowledge that we you know that we think applies to to both bodies equally really doesn't. We hear from Dr Mareka Big who is a sociologist and a patient about the topic. Then we look at how we are using pharmacies in the modern world and what a great resource they are with Reshma Maldi of John Bell and Croydon, uh, a pharmacy in central London. They're such an important resource and it's really, for me, a, a privilege to be able to almost um, fly, fly my flag to say, come and use the resources in your local pharmacy. So please do stay tuned for a great show. Thank you. Dr. Marika Big is a sociologist and author, and Hilary, who we'll also hear from, is, is a patient. The topic is the diagnosis and the length of time and the differences in the length of time to get a diagnosis between men and women. This is sometimes referred to as the pain gap. The pain gap. Marika specialises in what she says is the social question at the heart of medicine. So my first question to her was, what is that question? So, I mean, the question really is, you know, why is the male default in medicine? Um, so a lot of the knowledge that we think applies to male and female bodies actually only applies to male bodies. Um, so in my book, This Won't Hurt, I really explore kind of how historically and, and through the research still conducted today and how healthcare is delivered, um, the male is constantly treated as the kind of prototype patient. Um, and a lot of the knowledge that we, you know, that we think applies to, to both bodies equally really doesn't. And that means that a lot of women's issues are being neglected, misdiagnosed, that women aren't getting the help that they need. Okay. And that's what this pain gap report is, is really all about. So does that arise from sort of a historical issue because I, I was I spent some time sort of mulling this over myself and I thought mm. well maybe it's just that you know most GPs are male and that's the first port of call so mm. actually I, I checked that and I found out that actually most GPs certainly in the UK mm. are female yeah so yeah yeah mm. so 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 what what's what's going on is it is it historical well, it's, it, you know, it's a multi kind of level problem. It is partly historical. Like I said, you know, medicine has been shaped historically by men. So, you know, male scientists, research scientists and, and medical professionals originally asking the questions that they thought were important, that mattered to them and their bodies. And in doing so, women were sidelined. Today, as you say, we have more women working as first line sort of healthcare professionals but the decision makers are still predominantly men so you know the the people and funding bodies the people in charge um which means that issues that matter specifically to women you know fields like gynecology are still being siloed underfunded 
you know, those aspects of women's health aren't being adequately investigated. But it also just means that the knowledge we have is still, we, we assume it's default. That's the problem. We, we think it's neutral, but it's not. It, it's still based on these kind of historical assumptions. So a lot of the times we aren't asking questions that really matter to women and, and apply to their different bodies. And their bodies are different, not just in terms of their reproductive systems. You know, their hearts are a different shape and size you know, their pain signaling works differently. So there's all of these aspects of women's yeah. bodies that just aren't understood. I, I, actually, I, I want to come back to explore that a little bit more. But first of all, just going back to sort of the, the more basic question, because I think we can all probably come up with uh, anecdotal examples of, you know, friends or relatives who had this missed or that missed. And they, you know, and those those examples could be male or female. Mm. So, I suppose a more basic question is, how, how do you measure the gender pain cap, gap? I mean, how, how do you know it, it really does exist? I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't, but I'm just mm. kind of interested. How, how, how do you know that it's really there? Yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, reports like this gender pain gap index report that Neurofend did, that these reports help kind of quantify um, and, and measure the kind of extent of the problem so that's how we we take these anecdotes and, and we find trends and patterns um so what these find is that you know this report has found is that women it just takes a longer time for them to get a diagnosis for the same types of pain um so you know i think they surveyed something like five thousand participants and just on average women do not get a diagnosis within sort of a year, whereas men will. So it's these kind of metrics we can use to see. We can also, you know, see, I mean, there's other studies that have shown that, you know, while maybe something like 30% of women have some kind of reproductive issue within the, the, the course of their lives, only about half go and seek medical help because of the stigma and taboo and anticipated dismissal um, of their pain. So yeah. these these types of research studies help kind of gauge the extent of the problem. Okay, right. Well, yeah, let, let's move on to the sort of uh, symptoms that, that can be dismissed. So at th this point, we have uh, uh, Hillary, uh, who's, you, you, you've, you've actually suffered this of uh, symptoms being uh, dismissed and it taking you a long time to get a, a diagnosis what's uh, what what was uh, your problems your pains caused by and your sort of your experience Hilary so um my pains were it, 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 way more generic where, where it could happen to a, a man or a woman um and that is chronic lower back pain um but so chronic that that there was only one position I was comfortable in and that was in bed at a certain angle at a certain height and then at that point I felt no pain but of course you can't live your life in bed at a certain angle and at a certain height um, so it's absolutely debilitating actually um, and I, I went to the doctors possibly five times and in those five times I was um, I walked out with a, a prescription for antidepressants um, I was told to get a new mattress i was told to start pilates i was told to join a gym which i did and go swimming um i did some acupuncture which they turned their nose up at for some reason um but they did um and i i and i and i did say to the doctors please look at my records and see i'm not habitual 
doctor goer. I, I'm not looking for a season ticket at the doctor's surgery here. Um, but four or five times and I was just dismissed. And I, and I also think with traditional stereotypes, see men as self-reliant and tough and strong. So when they do go to the doctor, it must be serious. Um, whereas I think women are more um we are more relaxed in going to the doctors we we go there easier yeah I'm, i mean trying to figure out what back pain is being caused by is is not simple and actually some of those things sound like quite good advice you know do do some swimming that, that sort of thing it's the sort of thing that I, I i might suggest to a friend down down the pub if they have back pain so um Absolutely. And I, and I totally understand that. But 18 months later, and I'm still going back and it, I, I not once was I offered a scan. And um, in the end, I went to a private doctor who um, immediately sent me to a consultant. He gave me a scan. And the following day, he gave me surgery. It was done and dusted within a week. Right. And what, so you, you've had the surgery, have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had it a few years ago. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm skiing, running. I'm absolutely fine. Um, okay, and it interesting. Was, yeah, now, the doctors were all saying it's just wear and tear. You know, you're 50 something at the time. Um, it's just wear and tear. And and you kind of start when, when people say, oh, Hillary, how's your back? And I go, oh, it's just wear and tear. I'll just have to, I'll just got to get on with it. Got to live with it. But yeah. I didn't have to live. With it. it wasn't wear and tear. Okay, and but so you found the problem and it's been fixed. So that's that's good. All right. So you touched on something interesting there, uh, talking about men, how 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 men just put up with problems. Um, I don't know, but is is that really the case? I know men are quite good at sweeping issues under the carpet and kind of ignoring them. Um, yes, which seems to go against what we're saying here about uh you know w women women's symptoms sort of been ignored and women's problems just been ignored as because um, men seem to be able to ignore themselves quite successfully or at least that's what people say i think what i'm saying is women are more um likely to go to the doctors than men so when a man goes to the doctors it must be serious um, we've all you know we've all pandered around a man who's got a stinking cold and they say it's flu and behind their back we're rolling our eyes because we tend to, you know generally i'm obviously generalizing tend to tend to get on with it a bit more um so i feel that when men go to the doctors they are listened to more readily than when a woman goes to a doctor yeah it's why get fobbed off more than men because when a man goes to the doctor it must be serious no i i, I get it for sure Look, um I, I mean there are that issues get issues going on because I, I i suppose and this is just sort of a a, a a man's comment so i'm i'm not a medical person at all but you know uh, women are more complicated you know they have more complicated bodies there's sure. more to go wrong um and you know they they every month they have periods which causes pain anyway um is part of the, the 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 problem or the issue that there is just potentially more to go wrong and therefore more problems might be missed or is that too simplistic i don't know sorry can no, i, I in, can i interject there please do um yeah so i i think I take issue with that um, assumption 
and that ha that is generally the assumption that you know women's bodies are more complicated but we need to ask why we have the perception that women's bodies are more complicated would we think that if women had been investigated as extensively as male bodies had and you know this is often the argument that's used for example in animal studies for a long time when it came to pain studies on animals only male mice were used because the idea was female mice have these hormonal cycles they you know that will throw off our results they're more complicated but then i'm thinking all the more reason to include them because if you're doing studies to try to investigate pain and you're not investigating the effects of you know medication on female mice you're not going to understand how the pain medication affects women and you're not going to understand the kind of physiology of women so just this exclusion of women makes that a sort of um that kind of reinforces this assumption that women's bodies are more complicated and when they actually looked at the hormonal cycles and how they influence the results it actually turned out that you know women's cycles are quite predictable hormonal cycles they happen every month and they didn't very much affect the results that they were getting but the hormonal cycles of the female mice did influence the behavior of the male mice towards them so there's all of these kind of assumptions about you know women as unstable as complicated but they wouldn't be if we gave them the medical attention and scientific research that they need yeah no i i i, I can totally get that and th this this idea of um things being very historical and the, the, the mass of medical knowledge being created by men about men. Um, that, I mean, that has been the situation probably since the start of medical practice, I suppose, mm. hundreds, of, hundreds of years ago. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So how do you begin to undo that? How do you kind of begin to rewrite this script? Because it is, it's a kind of script at the same time that it's the knowledge we have, it's limited by our cultural assumptions. Okay, right. So you've asked the question, you've got a pen in your hand, and you've got a blank page. Mm. Um, what, what's the way forward? Yeah, so I mean, it's got, it, it, unfortunately, one side of this will have to be women advocating for themselves. And we shouldn't have to walk into the doctor and sort of have our issues treated as kind of niche or, you know, unusual, given that we're half of the population. But that's the situation we're in. So women can advocate for themselves. Um, and Neurofen just launched a pain pass today, um, which is a kind of downloadable PDF tool. It's free. Um, and it can help women track their pain over time to describe, you know, the level of pain. And if they find the, a doctor dismissing them or not investigating their symptoms, then they can use that tool as, to sort of empower them and give them a language with which to push for the help they need or seek a second opinion. Um, the other side, you know, besides raising awareness, just women knowing that this is a cultural kind of issue they're going to have to face, on the other side, we need to think about healthcare professionals, how they're being trained. You know, at medical school now, there will usually be a, a module on sexism, racism, these biases in healthcare. But it can't just be an afterthought. It really has to be part of the fabric of how healthcare is delivered. So there's got to be this ongoing reflection to kind of 
think, okay, am I, you know, am I adequately investigating this? Is this a gap in my knowledge? That's how you can start to rewrite these scripts and fill these these gaps that we have. Yeah. And so is that happening at, at medical schools now? Or is it, you know, is there an interest in this, uh, taking it seriously and sort of wanting to change things in the future? Is, yeah. is, is there yeah. a feeling that that's going to happen? So that, you know, this is changing. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it wouldn't even have been on the you know syllabus now it is being addressed um but it's still like i said it's a, it's considered a sort of add-on it's not really part of the science and the medicine it's considered a kind of social issue but that social issue shapes the medical knowledge we have and so it really needs to be at the center it needs to be a constant yeah. ongoing reflection all right so i mean so things it looks like things may well change in the future um for the better but what about i wonder if you can this this question is to both of you really but now today if uh, a woman goes to the doctor and thinks you know what she's just been kind of ignored poo-pooed you you mentioned this um pain pass thing mm. give a yeah. little more info about that or just some more advice on what women can can do and i don't mean you know picking up an argument with your doctor just a, you know a, a sensible way forward um to you know get heard yeah sure i mean um this pain pass really is useful um in that you can track your pain over the course of you know several months just to give your doctor a sense of this is an ongoing chronic problem um, it also gives advice on just how to deal the kind of deal with the interaction when you're actually there with your doctor. So to kind of ask questions, to really speak up and and push push your point when you feel dismissed, and then to go and seek another opinion. It offers some words to help describe your pain. Um, I also always say, you know, women need to be talking to each other because there's such a silence and taboo around a lot of, especially female specific, you know, gynecological pain. And the more that we talk to each other and normalize that and understand this is a widespread issue, the more empowered women will feel to really push for, for help when they're at the doctors. Um, so these are all really important, you know, aspects, educating ourselves, talking to people. I don't know if Hillary has has any other any other advice um since she had some success in getting the help she needed in the end uh, yes but unfortunately i i i was in a position where i went privately in the end so it it sort of doesn't it doesn't cover the majority if, if you know what i mean mm. uh, i think one of <clears throat> excuse me uh, one of the problems was that the five minute doctor's appointment and that included writing up the notes afterwards um how how can you move forward with how can you get over everything especially if it's something possibly more complicated than a back pain in in five minutes well that's <laughs> that's that's a whole different program isn't it i think that's yeah. the whole the issue, the issue there is how long gps have have, have with patients for uh, for sure we're not going to solve sure. that one now but have, have you found yourself uh in, involved with women's groups or or just your friends you know and advising them on how to deal with uh gps and actually uh get their will get their symptoms heard and taken seriously uh, personally no i haven't i haven't um most of my friends they 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 moan bitterly 
about they can't even get in front of the doctor, um, let alone having the opportunity to be, um, you know, to be to be to be seen as overreactive. Um, so they can't even get in front of a doctor. Again, that is another whole program. Yes, it probably is, isn't it? Okay, so may, maybe a, a good place to to finish now would be uh, if people are listening to this and think, you know, actually I am found, finding this a problem, uh, a resource where they can go to for more information, get more information ab about this pain pass, that sort of thing. What's mm. what's the what's the website? Yeah, so the website um, is neurofen.co.uk forward slash see my pain. So if you just go to to their website, you can download this tool. You can view the the pain gap report, showing you know that this gap is is widening. You can also check out my book, of course, "This Won't Hurt: How Medicine Fails Women," and um, for more context on the issue historically, but also what the future holds. Okay, is there anything on the NHS website? Because actually, the NHS website has loads of it, really good information about all sorts of things. Is this covered? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure they have something on it, though. So people should uh, try looking there as well. Yeah. OK. All right. Well, look, thank you very much indeed to both of you uh, for talking. I do think this is uh, an important subject, even though I am a mere man. So, uh, so many thanks. Thank you very much. I spoke with Rashma Maldi. She's a pharmacist at the John Bell and Croydon Pharmacy in central London. And we spoke about the changing relationship, really, with the uh, pharmacies and their customers and how we use pharmacies in in the modern world um, they really are a fantastic resource so I asked Rashmi just how many of them are there so to start with your question I think over the recent very recent times there's been a great number of shift in terms of number of pharmacies being available um, I'm sure you've all heard it on on the news where certain larger name um, pharmacy businesses have to economic reasons have had to sell off some of the pharmacies so I guess the challenge lays there is what has been tried to make sure is that there is sufficient amount of local pharmacies within your locality um, I'm really glad that we're talking about changing the relationships of pharmacists today and pharmacy today is because they're such an important resource and it's really for me, a, a privilege to be able to almost um, fly, fly my flag to say, come and use the resources in your local pharmacy. And why? So why am I talking about this? Um, pharmacies have been as a part of your local high street for years. Uh, and actually, if you think about John Bell in Croydon, going back that many years, um, it started as a pharmacy to look after its local community and its health needs. Um, pharmacy over the years has evolved from just a one-to-one -one conversation with a pharmacist, uh, talking about your ailments, making recommendations um, of products, or even just advice to help alleviate those symptoms, to now, um, many times you can come in, speak to a pharmacist if you've got concerns about your medicines. We're also able to now offer more and more services, so in terms of health checks, uh, which may have traditionally been done with your local practice, but actually it's much easier to come on in, don't need to make often make an appointment to the pharmacy, unless you may be coming in for a particular service where you may need to make an appointment. Um, and actually the advice is free. So you've, you know, you've got a whole range of 
um, people you can come and interact with the pharmacist. So yeah. it's the pharmacist, the dispensers, the healthcare assistants. So please do, if you haven't had a chance to look at your local pharmacy and what it can offer, pop in and go and have a look. Well, you mentioned coming in for, for, for sort of tests and finding out what problems could be. Can you mention a couple of sort of tests and things that people can come in for as, as an example? Absolutely. We, many of your listeners will be used to possibly pop, popping into a pharmacy to have their blood pressure checked, diabetes checked, cholesterol maybe even checked. Um, but actually services have recently re- uh, evolved to be able to do more complex consultations such as um, you can have weight management um, consultations, there's allergy testing, there's a range of other services to help manage clinical conditions to better improve health. So do come in and different pharmacies will be offering different services based on their local uh, community's health needs. So a good place to start could be the NHS website. It will highlight you'll be able to put down the area where you live. It'll give you a list of pharmacies available within that location. And you can then go into individual pharmacies to have a look at what they offer. Okay, all right. That's, that sounds like excellent advice. Let's move on a little bit. because This is bound up with the cost of living uh, crisis to some extent. Have you noticed there's kind of a, a change recently in how customers buy medications and, uh, and well, come in, to fulfill their prescriptions from you? Yes, I mean, cost of living, I think, has hit everybody in different ways. And I've much more noticed it, especially coming to patients coming into the pharmacy where with an NHS prescription, if you are not um, applicable for any benefits in particular, there is a standard NHS charge to be paid. And often, um, I, I worry that sometimes people may be making a choice as to whether they should be buying this prescription versus using that same money somewhere else that's, that's more important. And one of the things I'd like to remind uh, our listeners is that if you are having difficulty and money is tight um, and you are on regular medication where, for example, you're using two or more medicines every month and you're paying for your prescriptions, you may want to think about what is called a prepayment certificate. So it's A payment you do upfront for a period of time, you can get it for three months or a year, but actually by the time you pay for the certificate, any other medicines that you are then having to be prescribed in between are included in that certificate. So there's no additional payments to be made. So there are ways to actually help manage um, expenses in in using some of these services that NHS have put together. Uh, Sometimes I, I wonder whether everybody knows that such a thing is available. So actually being able to talk about it really important okay let's see if I've, i i understood that correctly then so if you if you've got a prescription that you know you're going to need monthly uh, and you can pay up front for a year but if during that year the doctor says actually you need a couple of more prescriptions uh, each month those two more or however many more you don't have to pay for is that right So your certificate is amount that you paid for the whole year, irrespective of how many prescriptions you then need to have throughout the year. Now, the reason why I said uh, you would more benefit from something like this if you were regularly taking two or more medicines each month. Um, And then if you had to, for example, it's not nice to say this, but if you had an infection or a cold and you ended up having to take some antibiotics, that prescription 
charge would be included as a part of your pay your prepayment certificate so it's always worth speaking to the pharmacist if you are paying for prescriptions to see is there a more cost effective way where these certificates could actually help you spread out that cost all right no that's, that sounds like excellent excellent advice uh, and moving on to um have you noticed people kind of sharing prescriptions or not finishing them particularly antibiotics because i know people do this and in fact not that long ago, we were in this crazy situation with the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, uh, Theresa Kofi, seemed to say it was fine. And yes, she shared her antibiotics with the rest of her family. Do you remember that? And I can see you're cringing. Um, I, I, I was cringing when I heard this on the news. I couldn't actually believe it. When, you know, we go top down, you know, you know follow the leaders, um, trust yeah, the leaders. I'm, I'm probably going to stay away. Rubbish, wasn't she? I'm going to stay out of the politics of it. So as an advocate, as a pharmacist, the piece I would want to champion is that when you have been prescribed a medication, a clinician such as a doctor has assessed your health needs and what has been prescribed for you is appropriate for you and may not be appropriate for somebody else. So sharing medicines um, has its own pitfalls behind it because as much as we all we all have caring hearts, we want to be able to do uh, good for others by sharing medicines where we don't have that sufficient clinical knowledge can cause harm to others, but also more so delay them seeking the help they need. Um, you touched on completion of antibiotics, and I think there has one of the reasons why we as pharmacists always try to emphasize that you if you have been given some antibiotics to finish the course, unless the doctor has specifically said not to. Is, is twofold, is often when we're taking an antibiotic within the first few days of using it, your symptoms are going to start improving because you're getting the infection under control. By not completing the course, you actually run the risk of possibly not clearing all of that infection in one go, um, which then may mean that you could actually re in fact, you could be reinfected that same infection again and therefore need to take another course of antibiotics. So it's really, really important that when we're talking about completing courses of antibiotics, we do follow the instructions being given to us because where we're not, we run the risk of possible antibiotic resistance. So it could mean that actually being given the same antibiotic later, your body just doesn't respond to it as well as it could do. Yeah, so let's just, just touch on the antibiotic resistance, because this, this is a big deal. This is important, not just for the individual, if you like, this is important for humanity, isn't it? Because there's a real problem with antibiotic yes, resistance right now. Yeah, and I think doctors have taken a, a very good call on that to make sure that actually antibiotics are only prescribed when it's actually needed. Um, so I think as a, a prescribing community, it's being done very responsibly, but what we do now need to do is actually those who do need those antibiotics are taking them and finishing them yeah. is, is the key here. Yeah, all right. What, what about other drugs that aren't necessarily prescribed? Because if you go, certainly if you go into my medicine cabinet in my bathroom and start looking at some of the boxes, you think, oh goodness, I don't remember I had this. When did I buy this? And you start looking at some of the dates. You think, goodness, this ran out a, a good while ago. Now, <clears throat> Should I just be chucking all that lot out uh, and starting again? Because I, I'm, I'm just making the kind of connection with food. If, if, if you have some milk and it says the sell by date is yesterday, you know, 
give it the sniff test. It's probably fine. Absolutely fine. You won't even notice. And it certainly won't do you any damage and will probably do you some good. Now, tell me the, what's the situation with drugs? Because obviously drugs and food are a bit different. You can't give it the sniff test in the same way. And I think you're absolutely right there. Drugs and food are different. Um, as much as I know there's been a huge campaign around food and um, trying to steer away from expiry dates to reduce wastage, actually the, the piece around expiry dates and medicines is actually much more critical. Um, when with any medicine, a manufacturer will have had to um, undergo quite vigorous testing of this particular drug and be able to demonstrate its safety, uh, of which one of it is around its expiry. Now, there's enough data that there will be available to prove that actually up to this expiry date, this medicine will be fine and safe for a person to use. What we may not have access to is data of what's the effect past this date. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that when we are looking at medicines that we are looking that it is within date, we're not taking expired medications, actually more so, Sometimes, as you quite rightly said, there are medicines that we haven't been prescribed. We've just maybe purchased um, things like painkillers. You don't need them every day. You might have needed it a couple of times. And then it's just been left in the cupboard, um, of which now it's out of date. The important bit I want to promote here today is around if you have got out of date medicines in your cupboard, bring them into pharmacy. We are, as pharmacies, are all able to take patient return uh, out-of-date medications and dispose of them safely so that actually it's not being put into general waste. Uh, we don't run the risk of taking medicines that are out-of-date that could cause us and others harm. Okay, although having said that, to some extent, you know, if, if, if the date on your headache pill is yesterday, it doesn't mean that yesterday it will cure your headache and today it's going to do you harm, does it? It's just, it's not like that. It's not a switch. So, you know, you, you've got to be a kind of a bit realistic about this stuff, don't you? Well, I'm going to say as a pharmacist, um, if it is out of date, I would ask you to, to safeguard yourself and not take it is is the point here. OK, all right. Um, but don't just chuck it in the bin, take it, take it to your local pharmacy and they'll, they'll deal with it. Absolutely, okay. because actually when you put medicines into into general waste, you don't know where it's getting to and whose hands it's getting into. Yeah. Whereas when it comes into a pharmacy, it is then picked up um, and dealt with appropriately and safely. But the, I mean, is the, is the risk, I can imagine the risk being that actually it might not work quite so well. You know, it'll take a bit longer to cure your headache, but it won't actually do you any harm. That's, that's we don't know a, that because... Go on, go ahead. Yeah, and I guess to answer your question, we don't know that in terms of it won't cause you any harm because what we don't have is data. We don't have information to, to show that past this, this expiry date, um, what's happening to the ingredients within this medication? Um, how safe is it? Could it, be causing, could it be causing a reaction within itself? And then therefore what is meant to be getting you better can be causing you harm. So I think the whole point of expiry dates and medicines is around patient safety. It's about um, there's enough information out there to say up to this date, the medicines will do what it says on the can and what it's intended to be prescribed for. Thereafter, there's just not enough sufficient evidence to, to support its safety. And actually, it's not going to do the reverse and actually make you very unwell rather than well. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, what's the way around this? Buy, buy less medicine, buy fewer pills when you need them so they don't go out of date because otherwise you can end up wasting a fair amount of money, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got, when you're buying medicines, often there are different pack sizes. So you can get them in small, slightly slightly bigger, and slightly larger. I guess you yourself will know how often you are having to use this medication. And if you doubt, uh, buy a smaller pack. There's less chance of a lot more going out of date. Um, but equally, if you're unsure around what should I be buying, speak to a healthcare professional who can guide you through a the right product for you um and then you can make that decision of how much are you likely to need yeah okay i i think kind of the summary of every topic we've chatted about is go in and have a chat with your pharmacist isn't it really it is uh, we're not just the pharmacy the pharmacy team there are there are a knowledgeable bunch of people um and often you'll find that actually information is it, there is so much information that you can actually extract from this group of people is to do come in if in doubt um you can access us walk in and come and speak to us many pharmacies have an online consultation you can speak to them not virtually um you know on the telephone so there's lots of different ways to access your pharmacy but please do if in doubt that's what we're here for and the, and the, the point to to really hammer home is, is that you know there's no huge waiting list on the whole you know you, and uh, it's much quicker to see a, a pharmacist or go to a pharmacy than to make an appointment with your gp very often uh it's free absolutely and it and it you know it's it's good proper advice you know these are medical professionals you're going to be chatting to absolutely they're professionals who have uh, got a degree uh, able to demonstrate uh, their competence as well and actually, if you did need a doctor, so you weren't sure, should I go to a pharmacist? Do I need a doctor? If we felt you needed to be referred to a doctor, we would be able to help you to do that as well. So make pharmacy your first port of call and then let us help you through your journey. Right. OK. Can, I mean, if, if you if you uh, a customer comes in and you think, goodness me, you know, actually, this person needs to see a doctor pretty quick. Can you help them with that process? Because actually, it's not always terribly easy at the moment, as, as we all know. Uh, can you kind of get on the on the phone to the GP and say, look, actually, this person needs to be seen now. Can you help in that process? Yes. I mean, there are referral, there are referral systems that pharmacists can use to contact your GP to let them know that uh, we feel that actually this situation that there is needs to be seen by a clinician equally the nhs have that many more uh, avenues such as um nhs 111 that we can use to also get you um medical gp help that much quicker as well so please don't feel that actually if i need a doctor i'm wasting a pharmacist's time you're not we're here to help and we'll help okay. you get to the right 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 clinician that you need right excellent advice now last thing um if people are listening to this and that maybe they missed a point or they, they just want to, to recap on how pharma, pharmacists and uh, pharmacy, the pharmacy staff uh, team uh, can help them. Uh, is there a website that uh, lays this all out very clearly, the NHS website, or wh wh where's the best place to go? Yeah, so well, the first place I would guide all of your listeners would be to use the NHS website. Um, it's got a wealth of information. It can also drill it down to specifics for your location. Um, but if you want, if you wanted to touch base with us at John Bell in Croydon, our website address is www.johnbellcroydon.co.uk. Excellent. All right, Reshma, look, absolutely 
delightful to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much for taking the time. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Mike, for having me on. I'll see you very soon. Thank you very much indeed to my guests on this week's show. And they were Dr. Mareka Biggs, sociologist and author, and also Hilary, uh, a, a patient with back pain, talking about the pain gap. And then it was Reshma Maldi, a pharmacist, talking about how we use pharmacies in the modern world. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening. And please do have a healthy week. Until next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like, and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week. Until next week.